You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. How God wakes people up. There's a very strange book of the Bible. When you, if you don't know the scriptures, you're going to think it's the book of Job. And I remember that as a new believer, actually turning to the book of Job, which we call thinking that that's where I was going to find a job. You can picture me as a college student. It's just really true, really true. And I, I actually thought people were mispronouncing when they called it Job, but it's actually the book of Job. And Job is actually a man right with God. And that should humble us if you know this story. He's right with God. He's a human being. He's not an angel. He's a man right with God, and he's pursuing God. And God chooses to try that man in ways that we would never want to be tried. We admire the faith of Job, but we don't want the journey that took to get to the faith of Job. You could say amen to that. And that would be okay. We only want the things that God wants for us, not more, not less. But in the middle of that trial, in the middle of that trial, Job has a statement, very serious statement by way of reference, Job chapter 9, verse 2. He's going to say, how can a man, how can a human being be made right with God? He's going to say, I've done all the right things. And his friends around him are going to say, I don't know. You know, maybe these negative circumstances are because you're actually in rebellion and sin against God. Others of them are going to say, maybe these negative circumstances are because you don't have enough faith. And so that's why you're not healed. And so that's why demons attacked you. Maybe there's some sort of secret thing. Maybe it's some sort of legacy from your family heritage. All of those things were lies. God would let that be known at the last chapters of the book of Job. So he would have a lament, which is our lament. We think it when things are good. We think it when things are bad. How can a person be made right with God? What, what the scripture is telling us here in chapter 4, as it's built on the previous three chapters, is that it's actually God's will. It's actually God's will for all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for all of the righteousness of heaven to be brought into your life. So if that's going to happen, if we're going to talk about the righteousness of heaven, the righteousness of God, if it's going to come into your life, if it's going to reside in your heart, if it's going to be in your mind, the rightness, the righteousness of Christ, if it's going to be there, and hopefully you want it there, I pray that's what we're assembled here as a church for, then that means your self-righteousness is going to leave. It can't exist together. And so that rightness of God comes and it wakes people up. It wakes you up as your self-righteousness leaves. The blessing, the benefit of that is that you actually wake up to God and you wake up to that destiny to say it that way that God has for you. You wake up to that purpose and design for which God birthed you. You, you begin to connect with God and, and stream with God in the most new and powerful way. I'm going to give you a few statements to help you understand the idea of waking up to God in this manner, the way the Bible's talking about, and I just want you to say true or not. And so, for example, is it true that Christ makes dead people alive? Is that true? Yes, that's true. Good job. Good job, church. Good job. 
Okay. Is it true that Christ makes bad people better? Is it true that Christ means bad people better? Oh, this is a tricky one, right? It would depend on the terms. It would depend on how we define these things. It's basically no. You don't come to Christ to be better. God's not promising that. He's promising you a connection with God. He's promising you a connection with God's righteousness coming into you. And as we define earthly terms of being better, do I have more money? Do I have better friends? I mean, listen, church, church is this hospital. We're all messed up. Like, this is not the place where you go, oh, I'm going to be better here. This is a place where you go, no, I'm going to contact God. And so it depends on the terms of this. Basically, no, here's one that should be easy. This, should, this is a big test for you. This is a big test, okay? It is Christ's will to make good people better. Yes or no? You should all be shouting No! There's no good people out there. That's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about that we have to be saved because we're actually bad people. We're sinful people. He's not promising you the bigger, better, best. He's not saying that you can trade out your spouse, get the bigger house. He's not saying that. He's not saying you can get rid of one boatload of kids and get a better boatload of kids or, or, or anything else like that. Well, maybe he does say that. The promise of the gospel is that Christ's righteousness, everything that is right with God, can enter your life and abide there permanently. And that means a transaction will take place that will be supernatural, not of your own design. It will be of God, that your own self-righteousness, your propensity towards all kinds of self-justification, it will actually leave you. And as it leaves you, you will experience a new birth and some of the most sacred promises of God, which are called freedom and peace and divine love. And so let me work through these principles with you, how God wakes people up. And so first and foremost, the verses that we're looking at here in the scriptures says this, that God wakes people up by faith so they can have confidence. God will actually wake you up in such a manner that you will actually have faith. This is the, the, the presentation in the text where it started out for this promise to Abraham. And I'll talk about Abraham in just a moment. And to all of his offspring did not come through the law, but through that righteousness of faith. And so God wakes us up by faith. Let's talk about this. So I'm not the only person who can make this outlandish claim. I'm not the only pastor, not at all. Not the only Christian, not at all. But I'm going to make an outlandish claim. I am 100% confident in my relationship with God. 100% confident on my worst day, on my best day. That's pretty fantastic. I'm not the only person who can say that. Christians can say that. Born-again Christians can say that. People who have been filled with the Holy Spirit can say that. I'm 100% confident for the very simple reason that it doesn't depend on me. I didn't go to the cross I didn't invent these things. It's not dependent upon me. Right now, the planet is spinning around and around and around, and Rick Soto has nothing to do with that. 
The laws of gravity do not depend on me. The growth of this church does not depend on me. It actually is a freedom. Because what I have is simply a divine connection to God through Jesus Christ. That's what I have. And I have that by faith. And so faith sort of works a bit like this. Every illustration breaks down at some point. And so let me just tackle this one. I, I love sports, and so it's going to be a sports illustration. So I want you to picture that you're actually playing, that you've been invited for some reason. You won a lottery, and now you get to go, and you get to go to the Staples Centers, and you get with a game on the line, they're going to call you down to court with no warm-up or whatever, with the game on the line, all of the world watching, everybody making noise, you get to make two free throws. You make two free throws, the game, they win, and you, you know, you're the top dog and all of that. Well, I'm sure you're like me going, well, okay, maybe I can't make two free throws. Maybe I don't know how to shoot two free throws. And you go, well, what am I going to do? Okay, well, here's what needs to happen in this illustration. We should actually ask for one of the best free throw shooters in the history of the game to be transported into you. That way your body will be animated in such a way and then they will actually take over and you'll make those free throws. And all of the best players in the game, they all know him by one name, right? So, you know, Kobe. Right? We don't say Kobe Bryant, we say Kobe. Okay, well, Kobe was one of the best free throw shooters in the history of the game, especially when the game on the line. We could say Curry, Steph Curry. That guy never misses a free throw. We could, we could transport him. Or if you want to go really old school to my day, old school when the dinosaurs were walking around Inglewood, California, and the Lakers still played in the forum, you know, guys like Magic, right? So they could be put in your body, whoop, and all of a sudden you're given the ball. And then, of course, we haven't even talked about Michael, right? Some of you guys are Michael Jordan fans. I'm a Laker fan. Boo-hoo, Michael Jordan. <laughs> but anyway, so then you just dribble, and it's, and it's like you've been taken over by this, by this person inside. Boom, he makes you two free throws, and you win the game. Okay, so every, every illustration breaks down at some point. Listen, that is what we're talking about. When we say that God wakes people up by faith so they can have confidence, there is this God who is real and he is your Savior and Lord and he comes into you by the power of the Holy Spirit through the authority of the cross to animate your soul, to save your soul, to fill your soul with the very power of God so that the life of Christ can work in you by faith. And it so doesn't depend upon you the way the law makes you think. The law will not give you confidence. This is like an exam at school. Hey, friend, did you, did you take the test? Did you get all the questions right? What's the answer usually? I hope I did. I think I did. Maybe I did. The law will not give you that kind of confidence. Faith will give you that kind of confidence because it is a connection. Okay, secondly, in terms of how God wakes people up, God wakes people up by nullifying the law. So first, it's by faith, and so we have this confidence. Second, it's by nullifying the law. The law. I'm going to read on here for an, um, a moment. For that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all its offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father to us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I want to stop there. God will actually nullify the law. I want to Go to Galatians. Go with me to Galatians 
And we're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 3 by way of a cross-reference as we talk about nullifying the law. Now listen, if you just get a digital device out or a Bible, just follow along. I want to read these things so that you can understand the importance of nullifying the law. Again, Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under, can you see that in your Bible? Under what? Under what? Under a curse. I've done this before. I won't do this right now. I've actually asked groups of people, how many of you feel like your life is under a curse? And I get a lot of people that raise their hand. And you know why? Because most people are walking around planet Earth under a curse. They are. They're under the curse of their own sin. They're under the curse of their own uh, doubts. They're under the curse of their own humanity. That curse has not been broken off. And so for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Of course. If I tell you, you have to do one, two, three, four, and five, and you don't do them, You've broken the law. You get one, two, three, four, right, but not five. You are what? A lawbreaker. So it's working against you. Now, to continue on, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So Christ redeemed us from the curse. Catch that, church? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That would be basically every single one of you, unless you have Jewish blood in you, so that we might, be, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God wakes you up by actually nullifying the law. And this is one of the most powerful things that I could ever tell you about. When I do Bible study with people personally, oftentimes this kind of sentiment will come up. Yes, pastor, I get that. Yes, pastor, I get that. Yes, pastor, I get that. I guess what I'm asking for is I need you to help me pull my life together. Raise your hand if you've ever felt like, I just got to pull my life together, right? Anybody ever felt? That's natural. It's natural. We look at our circumstances. <clears throat> we look at the things that we don't do right. And we have this internal compass that says, I just have to pull my life together. That's the problem. You think that you have to pull your life together, and it doesn't work. It works for a little bit. Maybe you make a goal, right? So some of you think, okay, I'm going to diet. Right, so a couple years ago, I made a few people mad because I said, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to lose some weight, I'm going to lose some weight. They go, well, what are you going to do, Pastor? Are you going to be on a keto diet? <laughs> are you going to be on a meat-only diet where you meet only meat? I've heard my friends have gone on that. I haven't liked the effect. I said, no, I'm going to stop eating cheeseburgers and fries because <laughs> I eat cheeseburgers and fries every day even if I make them for myself. I even stick them in the refrigerator, and then I get them out the next day, and I eat them. I'll even eat the stale leftover fries, and I'll put them in the pan, and I'll heat them all up. I'll do that. I said, I won't do that. I did that. I said, I wouldn't do that. I did it again. Then I just doubled Jesus. Please help me, God. Please, no. And I did it again. That's the law. Jesus will break the law from us, which says, I can have a cheeseburger or not. 
That's the supernatural pivot. One of the most profound things I ever heard out of who is the father, if you don't know him, of the Calvary Chapel movement, which is the church family that we find ourselves in. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, like a lot of pastors, constantly asks, you know, how much do you drink? You know, we're not talking about water, right? It's alcohol. How much, how much do you drink of your alcohol? You know, how many, how many beers do you have when you go home after preaching? You know, do you get a glass of wine out? You put a little something in it, have a little double shot? How much do you drink when you have to calm down at the end of the day? So Pastor Chuck, fatigued of that, just trying to figure out, you know, how do I communicate grace and how do I communicate truth? He actually stood up in church and said, you guys, you send me letters about this. You write notes about this. I have, I have a stacky set of mail of people asking me this question. And so here is the God's honest truth according to the gospel. I drink as much alcohol as I want. That's how much I drink. And if you want to find out what that want is, then come over to the house and ask my friends and talk to my wife. Because you know what the truth is? He drank nothing. But he didn't drink anything because he's a pastor. And he didn't drink anything because he's a Christian. He was free. And that freedom worked its way out, not with the law, but with the grace that said, I actually just know, therefore, internally the right things to do on this subject matter for me, and therefore, I just walk in freedom. I'm not white-knuckling. I said, wow, Pastor Chuck, that's powerful. Here's some example or an example of, of how you can tell that you maybe are operating your Christian life under the law. And it sort of speaks to the example that I kind of just gave to you. And that is, if you become angry at other people's freedom. So if you look at other people who are free, and you have an anger about that, anger is most operative, you probably are thinking about the law and not grace. And I've heard it all. I mean, I just have heard it all through the years. And through the years, things have changed. You know, but in my sort of more youthful days coming up, uh, you know, I can remember, you know, you know, can Christians dance? Seriously, we're going to have this conversation? You know what the answer is about Christian can dance? You know what the answer is? Some can and some can't. <laughs> That's, that, that would be the God's honest truth right there. Right? Some can never find the 1-3 beat and others are on 2-4, right? But there would be an anger related to that. Right? There'd be an anger at somebody else's freedom. And you could just pick the issue. And usually when I'm talking to that person, unpacking it, they're really saying in their heart, why do they get to do that? And I don't. That's the law. That's the spiritual law. And yet God is, wakes us up by actually nullifying the law. So, for example, if it's the school exam and to get an A, you're supposed to pass, you know, a 10-question test. Well, what if we just don't have a test? That's grace. Because somebody else took the test and passed it. So now you get to learn. That's the law. But our entire human orientation is the act 
exact opposite. Okay, so third now, as we continue on, God wakes us up through the faith of Abraham, which is exactly what I was reading. I have made you, the scripture says, the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. Church, write that down. Write that down. You got a digital device, it's a really good time. Get it out, press on it, get the highlighter out, right? Okay, so you can press it and you drop down on the menu. Let me read it again. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver according to the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. We have to talk about Abraham. God wakes people up through the faith of Abraham. So this is one of those outstanding stories. I had a chance to share Christ with a very intelligent man recently who was hearing about this, and he said, Pastor, you know that it's just a story, right? You know that this Genesis thing is just a story. You know that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's just a story. You know it's just a story. And I caught him because it just came out. I go, but what if it's the one true story? What if it's the overarching story by which all others, what if it's true? Real long silence at that lunch. Well, then I have a lot to think about, was literally the comment. So, Abraham, literally true story. Abraham, as a much younger man, gets a call from God to leave his home, which in modern terms is on the border of Iraq and Iran and to go on a long walk through what we call the Fertile Crescent and end up in modern-day Israel. And he would end up south of that nation. And through that whole time, he had this promise from God, I'm going to do something in your life that no one's going to believe. It's going to be great. It's going to be outstanding. And his name is uh, Abram, which means exalted father. So I'm going to give you children of a certain exalted manner because you're this exalted father. And the years and the years go by. How many children does he have, church? None. And the decades and the decades go by. Decades. How many children in church does he have? He has none. I've been with a lot of couples who have had the infertility issue, and it's really painful. It can be really painful. Jane and I used to tease sometimes and say that we touch elbows, we can have kids. You know, that's how it came, right? One, two, three, four. But some of our best friends, people that we love dearly, some family members that just, if you ask us, we'd say they'd be better parents than us. They're better people than us. I mean, every day of the week, and it didn't happen for them. 
godly people trusting God year after year, decade after decade, nothing. Okay, God, I'm this father. I'm this exalted father, okay? So now I'm getting to be old and my wife is really old and we're not having kids anymore. Maybe there's like this heir. So I'll give my money to this guy named Izar and maybe, you know, he'll, he'll be the inheritance. No. Then Sarah gets involved and says, okay, I know what God's will is here. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. This is what we have to do. Okay, so you're this really old guy and we have this sweet young gal over here who works for us. And so we got her out of Egypt. She's really an Egyptian. And, and uh, so why don't you two, you know, have the surrogate thing going on, which is not medical in the way we can do it in modern terms, right? They're going to consummate a relation phys- physically. So, okay, great. You guys can go do that. You can go, go be have because I'm too old. And then that guy will be our heir, right? No. That's Ishmael. So he's almost 100. And she's right there with him. So I thought about this for a while. I, I didn't know how to do this because we have a few people. But, you know, so is there anybody in our church that's over the age of 80? Can you raise your hand if you're over the 80? You feel comfortable doing that? Okay, thanks. You got a few. Okay, anybody over the age of 90? Anybody at 90? Okay, we got, I know we got Jeannie right there. I knew that, right? So, so. Do we think 90-year-olds should be having babies? Do we think they should be carrying the baby and have the ability to do that physically, even if they can consummate? Do we, do we think we can journey? Do we think a 90-plus-year-old woman can actually, therefore, give birth through the birth canal? Do we think that? Church, do we think that? No, we don't think that! It'd be weird if you thought that. You understand Abraham. Abraham means father of many. And so, so now, now we're almost at 100, and, and we, we take, he goes outside, and God says, let's go outside here, and you see all of the stars? See all of the stars? I will actually bless you through a child that comes miraculously through your wife physically that you actually consummate that transaction with and you will actually have a child named Isaac and through him will come the divine bloodline and we will actually make a nation. Abraham, if you don't know anything about the Bible, is the first Jew. I'm going to make a nation. There will come kings. There will come queens. And there will be this divine, sacred bloodline by which I will actually enter the human race now at 100. When you can't do it, I will ordain it to be done. God wakes people up to the faith of Abraham. How many of you like waiting? You don't even wait at Disneyland very well, right? You guys go get that fast pass. Right? You're not going to wait in line at Disneyland. You're going to get a fast pass, right? And if you're going to get on a plane, right, then you're going you're to figure out a way to get your points involved and all of that because you're not going to wait. You're going to get on the plane first, right? Nobody likes to wait. 
And nobody likes to wait when God has actually promised decades. If you don't understand anything about the story of Abraham and Sarah, please internalize this, that that promise that was given to them as they lived it out in spiritual community was embarrassing. Because in her day, much more than ours, but in her day, to be a spiritual woman and to be barren was that people around her thought she was cursed. She had a demon. Something was wrong with her. You're somebody that God chose to never encounter. You're not saved. There must have been something you did back, way back in the day. It was embarrassing. And yet God waited so that he would actually receive all of the glory. Fourth, God wakes people up by calling into existence things that don't exist. I love this verse. I love the verse that we just read related to this, that God actually calls into existence things that did not exist. It's speaking there ahead of time who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not actually exist. Verse 17. And so God will actually do that. And this is a hope, not a fantasy. God will actually take you and actually give birth to something that doesn't exist. And when I look at our church, like I'm talking about you, I'm talking about you right now, right here. When I think about our church, we need this hope. When I think about our nation and our community right here, we need this hope, a sure and certain hope that God will actually give something of birth and call things to exist that do not exist. And it's not a fantasy. It's actually a reality. And all of our spiritual brethren have actually been banking on that same hope. I thought about recently as I, as I uh, was thinking about Pentecost, and I was, uh, go to Ephesians chapter 2 as I get ready to talk about Pentecost. So here's Pentecost. Jesus Christ dies on the cross. Everybody say yes. Three days later, risen. Yes? Yes. Okay, now he's going to be around for a couple of weeks, right, about 40 days, and then, then Jesus is going to do his thing. But for 40 days, what's been happening is that you're going to have dinner, you're going to have dinner, and then Jesus appears. Whoop! Hi, guys. Good to see you. Hey, listen, just let me tell you how it's going to be. Oh, that's great to have the Savior here, man. That's incredible. That's incredible. He's gone. And then he's back. And then he's gone. Right? That's what it's kind of going like. And so, so now, now Jesus brings, brings the team together, and then he says, okay, so here it is. So um, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, and so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go proclaim me, you know, locally here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world, and I'm with you till, all the way to the end. I want you to go do that. Take my gospel. I'm with you. I'm with you. Supernatural power. you got to wait around because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're going to really like it. And so now, okay, you got it? Do you understand this? No, we don't understand this. you understand this? And then he starts floating, and he takes off into heaven. And then there's an angel there. And then, 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 then it's all gone. And then now, well, what do we do with that? What would you do with that? Okay, Jesus floats away. He's been coming back and forth. Then there's an angel. Then there's not. You go, what does this even mean? That's exactly where they were. And so now they're waiting. One day, two day, 
three-day. They're not supposed to move. Basically not supposed to go to work. They're supposed to stay there. Four-day. Okay, where are they staying? They're basically staying in a home that's about three to 400 square feet. Not three to 4,000. Not 10,000. We're talking about little homes, right? And, and in Jerusalem, and these are three to 400 square feet. You're supposed to stay there. You're supposed to wait five day, six day, seven day. How are we doing on day seven? Are we upset? Are we doubting? Are we scared? Yes, of course we are. Day eight, day nine, right? Day 10, right? If I go on vacation, you give me a 10 day vacation, day 10 is about when I relax. And then, the Bible has to describe it like a tongue of fire or like a rushing wind. And it's not that, but it's like that. There is a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit that just goes boom. And it just lands on everyone right there. And it's so intense and ridiculous that when they're actually out on the streets moments later, that people say these people are drunk. And then Peter, who had been everything but weak, everything but shallow, everything almost contrary to Jesus, and all of a sudden, this spirit of Jesus, it's the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is on him, this righteousness is burning inside him. And here he stands and he goes, they're not drunk. They're full of the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare call the things of God that are holy, that, that are profane. And let me tell you about David. And let me tell you about the scriptures. And let me tell you what's going on right here. And this is now the new economy of God. And there's something called the church that's going to be born. And all of you are going to be saved. And the promises for your children, for your generation, for generations afterwards. So that the entire world will know the very gospel of Jesus Christ. So that every single person will have their divine purpose. And by the way, you try and shut me up. Yeah, try and do that. Because it's not going to happen. You persecute me, I get strong. Longer. You leave me alone, I get better, and I will walk out of here, and everyone will be saved. And we got a problem with this? Everybody gets saved right now. Boom. Did you not have food today? We're going to pay for it. Did you not have rent today? We're going to pay for that. Did you not have clothing today? We're going to take care of that. Immediately. God wakes people up by calling into existence things that don't exist. So if you tell me you have no faith, good. God will call into existence faith and he will baptize you and he will burn it inside of you. Here's a, here's a way of understanding it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's us, right? The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace, you have been saved by faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Now lastly, 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works for which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can sing hallelujahs to that. Lastly, God wakes us up by the cross, which is what this text is saying. And the promise of salvation depends on the one who gave the promise who is God. The problem with the law, and I'll pray right now, the problem with the law and why God had to cancel it and fulfill it in Christ is that it promotes shame. The law brings about shame. How are you doing with shame? How are you doing with guilt? How is that handled over your life? The law has now been canceled, fulfilled with Christ, so you can be free of shame and so that you can be free of guilt. And you now walk by faith and by grace. And it's a belief. So I'm going to pray for us right now, right now. But it's a belief where in prayer we actually exercise that belief, but it's not even about that prayer. It's a belief because I know that Jesus Christ has actually put his righteousness inside of me and paid every debt that I can ever have against God before me, that I am actually now aligned with him and I'm free. I'm actually free from that guilt and I'm free from that shame. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.